Kia ora and welcome to a Korero Live for Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori. I'm Ryan Te Reona, or Ryan the Lion. Um, let's stick with Ryan Te Reona because it's Māori Language Week. And this special guest is Dan Hikaroa. So Dan, welcome to a Korero Live. Thank you so much for being part of it uh, with us. And if we could kick off, if you could kindly uh, introduce yourself for everybody as our first question. Oh, ka whai. Oh, kia ora, right? Uh, koutou katoa. Uh, Kua tau mai ki te rungo ke au. Uh, I te ahi ahi nei. Uh, he moko puna tēnei, uh, Ngāti Manipoto Waikato Tainui, uh, ko Ōwhawhi, uh, me taupari ngā maunga, ko Waitomo, me a Waikato ngā awa, uh, ko Tokekapu, me a wahi ngā marae, uh, ko Ngāti Uekaha, uh, Ngāti Ruapuha, Ngāti Te Māwe, uh, ngā hapu, ko Dan Hukuroa. Beautiful. Now, that being your pepiha, um, would you be able to break that down in English? I picked up some words and I'm getting, uh, the more I'm hearing, the more, uh, we talked about it with uh, Jared in the previous one, you the more you, you, you have that, what is it? Um, you can more, understand more and more of it. You can't respond as much as you want to. And I'm starting to have that moment where I'm understanding more and more. So if you could run us through um, your Whakapapa oh, yeah. uh, through oh, that. Yeah. Oh, um, and, and one of the great things too about Pipiha is that uh, they're, they're somewhat f formulaic uh, in, in that, you know, you can anticipate hearing things about mountains, rivers, marae, uh, people. Um, so if you're anticipating that, sometimes, you know, the, the key thing is kind of the names of those things. So uh, uh which is in uh, Waitomo and, and Taupiri are uh, two maunga that I identify with. Uh, Waitomo, the river, and Waikato, the river, are uh, two rivers that I identify with. Uh, Tokikapu and, and Wahi are two marae that, that I identify with. Uh, my, my strongest affiliations and the ones that I know the best are with uh, my hapu in, in Ngāti Manipoto in the Waitomo area, Ngāti Uekaha, uh, Ngāti Ruapuha and Ngāti Te Māwe. I also have, and I didn't say this in my PPR, I have, I have older links back to Te Arawa Waka as well. So all those other ones are from the Tainui Waka. I have links back to Te Arawa Waka and I also have links back to um, Parihauraki through, through Ngāti Whanaunga. Wow. Thank you so much. So a couple of people have talked about the different wakas and I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of an overview because there was a, for some reason I've got seven in my head, but it, that could be for, for no good reason at all. But there was an original group of waka that made their journey through here to New Zealand and people refer to the Tainui waka, the Te Awa waka and a couple of others. But can you give me the correction so that uh, everyone who doesn't know like me um, can now know? <laughs> Yeah, so this, this goes into the importance of um, teaching the correct history in our schools because we've all mm. been um, taught and our teachers and our parents and probably even our grandparents have been taught incorrectly. I'll be very clear, incorrectly. Yep. Yep. There was one fleet of seven canoes that were blown off course and uh, stumbled across New Zealand, emaciated and near death. That is a complete uh, fallacy and a fabrication and it was consistent with uh, the colonial project of um, and, and the chain of being where where European uh, civilizations were more advanced and, and these other ones uh, weren't as advanced so there was no way they could have come down here. Uh, I think a better way to think about those seven waka is that they were um, maybe some of the last seven waka to come down to Aotearoa from, from Hawaii, from Te Mwananui Kiwa, from from the Pacific, uh, and hence being the last uh, canoes, they were the ones that my people most strongly aligned with. But there, there are many uh, that people will, will give in their pepeha that wouldn't fall into that kind of the final seven uh, that, that has become so entrenched um, as the truth, which we now know is, is, is incorrect. Certainly those waka listed in the seven, I'm not going to try and do it because yeah. mainly because I'll, I'll, I'll miss some out and then I'll be in trouble whenever I go and visit those places. But those seven are real, 
uh, there's yeah. just more than seven. Makes good sense. And you're exactly right. That is why the correct history needs to be taught. I don't know if you've heard me say it because we've only just been connected recently um, through, well, first of all, I was going to come to your presentation but couldn't make it for family health reasons uh, through Dan to Whenua Walker. Um, and that was actually, I think, a, a Māori group within the University of Auckland. And then, yes. of course, uh, Rosalind Archer connected us um, through the University of Auckland, or she's University of Auckland with you. So great connection there. Um, so you may not have heard me talk about the fact that I only learnt of the two treaties aged 38, which was five years ago, not 15 years ago, as some might joke, but um, five years ago, and was totally blown away. Sitting in the Ngāti Whātua Orakai office, which I don't know if people quite get the the, um, the the point of that, but I was sitting in one of the offices of the uh, iwis, looking at the wall going, and said to Anahira, I said, why are there two on the wall? You know, like, isn't one enough, I think, might have even been my joke. And how stupid and ignorant, um, but what a great opportunity to bring that truth to the fore. And she explained to me, she said, yeah, the, the one on, the, that one there is the English one that was signed, um, but that other one is the, the Māori version, which was understood. And this is where the uh, different understanding of sovereignties have um, been, the, I guess, the core of all the different um, challenges and issues around the, the treaty. Um, separate to all the different, uh, um, let's say, bad uh, treatments of Māori through the time from that point, um, you know, back in the days of land confiscation the right. wars and all the rest of it. So, um, and I was like, oh, well, no wonder. It's like having two, you know, uh, talk to two kids. Who broke the window? Oh, it wasn't me. It was him. No, it wasn't me. It was him. Well, which one's the truth? So New Zealand has let's say Pākehā in New Zealand um, has been taught uh, the lie on many things for a long time. Hence why I personally, since that day, have also been one of the people pushing for correct history I, being taught I, in schools because when I did seven form history, me and one other chose New Zealand history because you get the choice in New Zealand or I think they call it, I think they might even call it um, normal history. You can either do normal history or New Zealand history. And normal history is Victorian history. And um, so we, we, uh, my history teacher happened to be English as well. And he just went, well, I'm going to decide for you. You two are going to do um, normal history with everyone else because I'm not teaching just the two of you in New Zealand history. What a waste of time. It's only 140 years old. Who cares? But, well, we did. That's why we chose it. But anyway, <laughs> so great news that New Zealand history is going to be taught in schools properly. And we um, all have a responsibility to not accept BS. It has to be the, the real deal. So that leads us on to our next question, which is uh, your Tereo journey personally. If you could share with everyone what that's been like, if you have grown up fluent or if you just started later in life, or where, where did it begin? Oi, oi. O kei te tipu au te raki pai whenua. Uh, kei te tipu au... I roto i, I, I tōku whānau, uh, he tipu au he, he So I, I grew up on the North Shore of Auckland. You know, I grew, I grew up with my family, but, but effectively, I, I grew up Pākehā. Uh, my, my father uh, and his, most of his siblings were not taught to reo by, by their parents. And, and, and their, the principle behind that decision was... Uh, because they wanted their children to get ahead in the, in, in the world. They didn't see a future for Te Reo. Uh, and, and while that you have to make a decision like that, you know, still breaks my heart a little bit, um, you can't fault their intent that they wanted their kids to do best and they just felt that by doing best they would just stick to English and not learn Te Reo. Um, so I did not grow up fluent. Uh, I, I learned a little bit of Te Reo uh, in primary school. Uh, so I, I, I learned for five years while I was at high school. Um, I saw to deal from third form, don't know what that is in modern years and stuff, but third form through to seventh form. Uh, and then when I left. Uh, kei te haere au ki te, te whare wānanga, 
ko tōku hia hia uh, he, he akonga ngā mea o te taiao. So I went, I went to university to become a, or, or te putaiao, I went to university to become a scientist. Um, and, and, and I, at that point, I didn't see any real value to me in my journey uh, in, in taking te reo. It didn't really align with, with my science classes and my labs and things. So, so I didn't pursue te reo as part of my degree. I did, however, take uh, a course which which sowed a seed uh, for kind of changing my life a little bit, although it took a little while for the seed to, to germinate and to take root and then to grow. And that was to take um, Māori 130. And I think all of you out there who have taken Māori 130 will know what I'm talking about. Uh, it, it's Introduction to Māori Society. Uh, there's an amazing um, host of, of teachers and lecturers on that course at the moment. Uh, when I took it, uh, Professor Ranginui Walker was was the professor, was the, the teacher. And so if you just pause for a moment and think about you know, all you had to do was enrol in a course, pay some money, turn up, and you get you get time with Ranginui Walker. So that wasn't my court my, my real journey so much there, but it was it was a, a, a seed that kind of was sown there. Uh, I'll, I'll fast forward a whole lot of stuff. I got my degree, uh, decided to do postgrad, got tricked into doing a PhD, um, did a postdoc in climate change. And then I took on a role uh, working in a research institute uh, that was my primary focus there was uh, working with Māori communities to help try and realise dreams and solve challenges. Uh, drawing from my science training, uh, but also kind of pulling in and um, making teams to, to, to solve those challenges and work with communities. Um, it's worth mentioning also that I taught for three years at Te Whare Wānanga o Awanui Ārangi, Kei Whakatane, so that's the Māori um, Tertiary Institute down in Whakatane. And I was teaching geology and I was teaching uh, coastal geomorphology and management. So during during that teaching time, of course, you know there were there were tikanga that we followed. You have a karakia to start every day. You have a karakia to finish every day, uh, and we were strongly encouraged to, alongside the geological um, components, plate tectonics, you know, subduction, earthquakes, volcanoes, that sort of nonsense. Um, I was encouraged to explore and include matauranga wherever that made sense, and I, I have to. Um, me to to my my students when I was in that course, uh, they might have seen themselves as the only students, but I was certainly a student learning from them so much. Uh, and then yeah, came to this role um, working with communities, and that was where I started to pick up, not in a formal sense, uh, but by being active in Māori communities, by participating in in Porfiri and Whaikōrero. Uh, I began to pick up this this language, and then I was in that role for five years, and then I went, I uh, was appointed to research director in Ngāpai o Te Maramatanga, which is New Zealand's Māori Centre of Research Excellence, uh, and that's, that's based also in the University of Auckland. And as part of my role there, I also had um, started to use te reo a lot more. I uh, spent six years in that role and now I'm working in Te Wānanga Waipapa, which is Māori Studies at the University of Auckland, uh, where I continue on my language journey. I would describe my uh, ability as, just like you said earlier, I can understand a lot more than I can verbally communicate back. Um, and I would imagine I'm somewhere in that intermediate kind of, kind of range uh, at a push. Uh, I, I can get up and perform the function of a whaikōrero, but it wouldn't be what you describe as beautiful oratory. Uh, but but tikanga would be would be observed. Okay, well that's a fantastic journey. I mean, um, I think if it, it goes back to when you were teaching the, those three years at the Fakatane uh, school that I can't pronounce, uh, where you uh, able to combine the science of geology. Uh, let's say Western science with the Māori science of Matauranga. I think I've got it spelled incorrectly in the, oh, that's the right. name, but I can edit all those in later on, <laughs> so don't panic about that. Um, uh, so 
this this is where we come into that beautiful part where uh, I've referenced um, when we were introduced by Rosalind uh, her Grace teaching me to greet the water. And it's been mentioned in some of the discussions or corridors this morning. And uh, the, the, the comparison of the sciences, um, when, when Te Araha first uh, talked about it, I sort of scoffed and went, oh, that's a bit much, isn't it, mate? You know, come on, you know, um, probably being a bit Western, a bit, a bit scientific. And uh, yeah, he took a breath and explained. He said, well, no, actually, um, you know, we ourselves die and regenerate. And as they die and regenerate, they uh, come out through our uh, you know, excrement, um, our breath, uh, whatever, you know, it can be caught up in our spittle, you know, all different ways it comes out in different uh, amounts. So essentially that gets back into the water uh, and the water you know, flows through in there. So we greet the water as though it's a person because it has a whole bunch of us and our people in there. And um, when I sort of thought about it, I went, oh, that kind of makes sense. And I'd actually not long seen this video um, before that discussion. So it should have been making more sense. I must apologize, but there's a really great talk by a, um, Google's chief scientist, uh, who's this um, Asian guy, extremely intelligent, he's got more degrees than you can shake a stick at, da 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 da. But what he talked about was the science of how our body's cells do decompose and regenerate over, I think, three months. So we're, and I was like, I thought that it took eight years for some of our cells to change. But anyway, um, beautiful story on the super, you know, the, the Western science side of it, of how the cells do regenerate and we are breathing them out, we're breathing them. And so we're having a discussion with someone, you can literally be breathing in their dead cells and they're breathing in yours. So therefore the concept of the cells getting into the water um, and the environment and everything, because you know, if it's on the ground, then the water, it rains and the water washes through the ground and picks up the cells. So this whole concept and the tail Māori um, of you know, land having um, the same rights as a human and having the same or being treated the same as a human, all that area. That's what I want to open up with our discussion today because that's by the sound of it being your life. Yeah, and, and I'll just pick up on a couple more points um, that, that you raised there. And then if the body is 70% water and if in traditional customary times, you know, you drank from that spring, you drank from that river, Literally, you know, when you say I am the river and the river is me, you know, you're seventy percent that river and you've shared yourselves with that river. So so even from a science framing, that makes sense. But we need to be careful also that we don't just explain and make sense of the world according to the science framing. There are other ways of knowing and being and making sense of the world. And that's that's part of that journey that was sowed with me, you know, and that cause with Ranganui Walker that I picked up again when I was teaching down at Te Whare Wananga o Awanui Arangi in, in Whakatane. And that's that, in a Māori worldview, you know, those those are our ancestors, you know. Papatoa nuku me ona uri, the water, they can, they can literally be, and they are, our ancestors. And when you think about it, you know, those rivers, they, they are a source of sustenance, the ground, you know, Papa Tonuku, she is our mother. We look after her and she looks after us. She was here before us. She'll be here after us. Uh, and so even um, from a science framing, it can make sense. But from a Maori framing, from an indigenous framing, it makes sense anyway, because that's where we're from. We're from the earth, not even just, um, you know, not from a place. We are of that place. We are of the earth. And so, yeah, uh, my journey around uh, exploring these two different ways of knowing the world, you know, and I, I, I'm interested in your note on, on, on history, where you could say, oh, they have normal history or, or New Zealand history, and noting that, you know, Māori, the term Māori is, is kind of is translated as normal. You know, Māori didn't, we didn't identify as Māori, we'd identify as Ngāti Manipoto or Waikato Tainui. As a collective term, that, that, that had no... It had no real usage pre pre contact. It made sense when we referred us as a group to others as groups. We were the normal and, and others, but um, I, I digress a little. No, no that's that's really important. Um, funnily enough, uh, Teora Grace shared that with me um, in one of the original yarns with that I did with him on my tangy day down at uh, Okura Bay. Okahu. Okahu, sorry. 
yeah. had uh, the name in my head the wrong way. Um, so she had that. And what was the other thing um, that was? Oh, Aotearoa is not a Maori word. Um, well, no, it is a Maori word, but it's, it's not the word that Maori used to describe New Zealand. Something well, like that. We didn't have a framing for New Zealand as we understand it today. That that grouping of all those islands, we didn't have a name or, or, or one name to, to group them all together, as best I understand. And so, in fact, it's interesting. In all my publications now for the last four years, and I prefer to use Aotearoa New Zealand to describe about the place that we call it today. Yeah. But I make a note that because I also got told and. Um, reminded when I was in the South Island that when talking about Aotearoa, that's just a Māori name for the North Island. There are others. Um, oh. there are yeah, so Teika Maui is of course another name for the North Island. But but what what's happened is in a contemporary usage, Aotearoa New Zealand has come to be used for all of New Zealand to reflect our bicultural tradition and 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 history uh, and our heritage. And so I mention that to say. I acknowledge Aotearoa was one name for the North Island and never meant to encompass everything. But to reflect contemporary usage, um, I, I use it that way. So, yeah, that's... Um, that's, that's quite amazing, isn't it? Um, it is. So what, what, is, is there an actual word within uh, Te Reo Māori that is the all of New Zealand, or at least not, the North and the South Island? Not that I know of. So what's you, you mentioned one that was probably about three words that was another word for another one for I think it was had Maui Maui in there which would make sense. I'll, I'll explore that a little bit because I think it's a really good example of um, those different ways of knowing and making sense of the world. So Maui, of course, is Maui. Um, yeah, and you know one of one of the Puraco, uh, one of the kind of the oral stories, oral traditions. Talks about him, you know, going for wanting to go fishing with his brothers, and they're like, "No, no, no, you're a mischief maker and all sorts of stuff." And so he he stows himself away uh, in, in the the canoe. They take off in the morning. And he pops up when they're miles out, and and recognizing, of course, that there's lots of different versions. So I'm just giving kind of a, a pull together short version for this. Yep. Um, and recognizing that everyone's version and their own version is right, and that's one of the other cool things about Matarana is that you're never about being right and them wrong. It's about we're both right. We've both got our vision, which is really cool. And that, that's a useful thing to keep in mind, actually. Instead of trying to have a binary right and wrong, it's like right and right. Think about the possibilities that Ooh. that bring. Um, so anyway, he's out there. Uh, he pops up, and he, he, had, he had his uh, ancestress. Some people say grandmother. Some people say great-grandmother. Some people say older. Muriranga Whenua's jawbone. Um, he used that as a hook. They wouldn't give him bait. He hit himself on the nose. He baited his hook. Uh, he fished up, uh, some say it's Tongonui, some say it's Tongonui, or it's the house of Tangaroa's grandson. Um, pulls pulls it up, hooks it onto the um, the house, pulls it up. And then when it gets to the surface, you know, he calls it um, variously ranga whenua or haha whenua or haho whenua. Um, but as soon as it's caught, it becomes te ika a Maui, the fish of Maui, or te ika nui a Maui, the great fish of Maui. And and that becomes the north. That's the North Island. And then Te Waka Amawi is the South Island, and Te Ponga Amawi is is Stewart Island, uh, and and Te Taumanu Atika or sorry, Te Waka Amawi, uh, the kind of some people say it's kind of the seat. Some people say it's kind of a little bit of a, an outrigger thing. Uh, that's that's the Kaikoura Peninsula. Gotcha. Uh, and so all, all of those, that's, that's the closest I've come across for kind of words that will relate at least to one thing that might encompass everything that we call New Zealand, except for um, the Subantarctic Islands and, and the Chathams. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's, that's, that's a framing for, for New Zealand. And I remember as a kid thinking, oh, yeah, I can kind of see the fish with... And Tupoko Otika, the head of the Ika is, is Wellington, the Wellington area. Um, Tehiku Otika um, is the tail, which is Muri Whenua, which is kind of that long extended part of, of the North Island. We've got Ngapako, the Finns are out on East Cape and out on, on um, New Plymouth side. We have Tetara 
Ote, um, Oteika, the, the barb, if, if you've got the, um, the stingray, that's the Coromandel Peninsula. Uh, some people say that the pito, the umbilical um, tummy button, is topo, um, uh, tuara, the backbone or the spines are the axial ranges, you know, the ruahines, the kawikas, the tararuas, the, yeah. those ones. Uh, yeah, and then you go to the South Island for the canoe, Te Taui, who is, is um, kind of Blenheim, Marlborough, kind of Nelson area. That's the, the stern, um, uh, sorry, the bow of, of, of the waka. And then you come down to Te Taurapa, which is down this, um, down in Vicargal Way. That's the, uh, the, the stern post of, of, of the canoe. And so these are all these are all connected as as kind of what we call Aotearoa New Zealand today. So that's and as a child, I remember thinking, yeah, it kind of looks like a fish and kind of looks like a canoe. And the canoe, the canoe, some people say it hit a, it hit an underground reef, and so it listed to the side. And that's why you get yeah. the mountains on one side and, and the plains on the other. Um, and then as a geologist, I also know that you know you can go up near Mount Ropehu, um around Tomaranui and there, and, and there are fossil shellfish. There. So, actually, in geological terms, um, that piece of land was once under the water and has been brought upwards through geological processes. And it was literally about two years ago when I heard an awesome corridor by Rangi Matamua, who was has just been awarded the Prime Minister's Chief Science uh, Communicators Award, and he spoke about um, maramataka and, and navigation, and he said that when and back to those waka, when those waka came down, most of them left, most of them went to Rarotonga as their kind of final staging post. Some of them may have been built there and left from there. Many others came from um, the Tahitian Islands and other places and would end up, and Rarotonga would be their last port of call. They'd set off from there. And in the, in the voyaging season, um, they used the stars, of course, to get down. There is um, a particular constellation most people know it as Scorpius, Scorpio. Uh, for Maori, that's called Te Mato a Maui, the hook of Maui. And, and in that particular um, season of, of, of traveling, uh, that constellation is upright in the sky with the shank at the top, and then it comes down to the hook underneath. And when you use the stars to align yourself down and follow them down, and then you hook on to the Tumato or Maui, as you sail towards it, that hook comes out of the ocean and pulls the North Island out with it. So if you can imagine sailing over the horizon yeah. and, and land begins to appear, and above that land, the hook is pulling, ah. pulling that land out. So over the, over the horizon is the, the hook as in the, um, well, you'll be looking at this way, this yep. is the, the hook of the constellation. So that's yep. how you'd know that you're on the right path as you're coming over, you see the hook. So literally, the, the hook of Maui fishes, fishes it out of the ocean. That's amazing. I, I've not had it explained. It makes, in some ways, um, it makes practical sense. Maybe that's the Western science uh, that's been installed in me over years of schooling. But um, even even if I'm like I'm imagining it like a movie, right? Like I'm thinking, you know, we must we need to make this as a movie, you know? Yeah. We'll get a hold um, of Ian Taylor and say, "Hey, Ian, we got a story for you. Let's let's make this into a movie." Well, um, Ian and um, uh, Nakora Naropa who's on later this week, because that's what he does. Um, yeah. But yeah, Ian as well. Ian's obviously probably well-known and uh, prominent, but uh, the, that would be the right two, I think, because Nick, uh, Nikora is in the world of animation. Um, yeah. I think four movies. He's worked on the movies, and Ian obviously has more, to me, a sports background, but that's, that's, the, that's the Māori industry telling the Māori stories versus, say, the Hollywood uh, telling the Maori story. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the less said about that latter one, the, the better. Well, I've got a love-hate with that with that movie. The... Know, I, with, with Moana. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what I thought you were going to be talking about. Yeah. 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 I, I just love that my girls can, um, can, can see their language and people that make sense to them and, and, and it'll be celebrated that way. I hate how they depicted Maui as a bumbling buffoon. Um, there's, there's one quote I use from that movie though all the time. 
yeah. which is when Maui says, I can explain every natural phenomenon because with my science thinking hat on, that is the purpose of the Maui Purako. They explain, they're there to explain stuff. And so Maui's fish hook, that explains, it's both a literal and a metaphorical. It literally is a hook fishing it up, but it's metaphorical and it's, it's codified in story form so that everyone can access it. Um, when, when Maui talks about, they talk about trapping the sun, it's talking about seasonality. Um, and then the reminder for that is if you've ever, on a semi-cloudy day, um, and you've seen those rays of light coming through the clouds. Yeah. Those yes. Those are Maui's ropes. They're like, oh, look, ropes are still dangling off the sun. I've got the most amazing photo for you. Um, I'll, I've got it on my phone. I've got a collection. I take photos of clouds, right? <laughs> I sound a little bit weird. But I live in, I live in, uh, I live in uh, Te Aratu South, so coming um, along the causeway, I had to get off of Pātiki Road, pull over so I could take photos because there was this massive cloud and the sun was behind it. Um, but it had little holes all through it. So look, it looked like uh, a space, well, to me, I thought it looked like a spaceship with these five or six legs. But in actual case, it would be the perfect photo for the story of Maui uh, capturing the sun for the seasonality. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll, I'll actually add it into the comments. I can add it into the comments. Uh, awesome. so I'll do that later on. So let me just drop the note. That's what I'm doing when I turn around to the side. I'm trying to still, um, yeah. still listening. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, Maui's clouds with the sun rays. Yeah, and, and I that suppose would have probably been thirty minutes. I reckon that's. So I'll put it thirty minute in the timestamp. Yeah. Boom. There and we go. One of the things that um, that I've realised because of having a good, a strong training in science, and then and growing an understanding of Matauranga is that is that Matauranga a lot of it has been generated consistent with the scientific method. So knowledge of things like the maramataka, um, the, the, the stellar lunar ecological calendar. And so stellar, um, we have stars, all the months are, are stars. The lunar is that the, the 29 and a half day lunar cycle where you go from kind of no moon to a full moon to kind of nothing again, that's 29 and a half days. And in those days, or nights, really. It, it's a predictive tool about, okay, in this season, um, we might expect to do this. In general, it's kind of like fishing might be better this day, fishing might be a little bit worse that day, gardening's going to be better this day, or actually planting's going to be better that day and harvesting's going to be better that day. And then within the seasons, it kind of varies and fluctuates within that. And I mean, that, that knowledge is, is empirical in nature, has been critically tested through time, uh, and so is therefore accurate and precise. And, and, and that knowledge, even though it's developed independent of the scientific method, is nevertheless following the scientific method. I mean, let's be honest, the scientific method is just a really good way for generating and testing knowledge and making new knowledge and incorporating new knowledge as, as things discover, you discover new things and they change. And that's where the maramataka is really good. And that it anticipates that through time, things may change. And so that's where um, I think it's going to be really critical for New Zealand in, in this climate change to really be looking at those maramataka practitioners because they'll notice when things start, and they have already. Um, and I'm not one of those, but I, I'm, I'm, I know many of them are saying, yeah, the flowers are flowering differently and, and the seasons of things. And that's one of the weird things about our current calendrical system, which is the kind of January, February, March, and our, our seasons, because you know, have you ever heard the expression, oh, uh, spring's late or, or summer's early or, or, or winter's not? It's like, well, that's only when you try and force an independent timing mechanism on something that operates on different scales. For Māori, those seasons occur when you get three things happening. When the star arrives, uh, when you get the tohu o te rangi, which is your star, Tohu o te whenua, which is something in the land, some, maybe, maybe a plant might bloom, and tohu o te moana, which is where something will occur in the oceans. When those three things occur, then your season's arrived. So you're, you're, you're aligning seasons with the natural variation the in the environment, not trying to get an independent timing system to say, summer, spring needs to be happening here on this day. No, spring yeah. will happen when spring happens. 
That's um that's quite magical. I'm quite uh, I'm trying to work out been trying to work out the words. And I think you actually might have said it when you're talking about um coming over the horizon and the the fish hook pulling it up because it has a did you say a literal and uh, yeah yeah and that's probably the, the the best thing but the other uh, thing that i'm picking up is that um Matoranga is based on um practicalities you know things that are real that happen but yeah so not, not all of them are, oh not all of it okay not all not there's, all of it. there's the next uh, question already but um yeah you know, those when those three things happen together, right? So you get your star, and it might come early, but no, it's not the change of seasons because we're still waiting on the other two. Now we've got our plant, cool. Uh, now the now the water's changed. I don't know if that means that a certain fish or maybe seabirds leave or come because you know the the migrations, etc. But um, you know those three things, and that that tells us. And there's no. It's sort of like a, a certainty in a way as well because those three things have to happen. Um, it's not like, a, is it early? No, we're still waiting on the third thing. Um, is it late? No, we're still waiting on the last thing. You know, so it's always on time. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, I don't know. It's it's also in some ways quite exciting to learn this. Like it's almost like taking me back to my childhood. And in some ways, well, mixed between my early childhood at primary school. And my later years, because I did do biology all the way through to seventh form, and um, uh, my favourite part about it was anthropology in terms of um, you know how humans behaved and the different stages they went through. So this is social anthropology in, in some regards of how um, these things were used as part of how they existed, and it, yeah, I'm finding it quite fascinating. So if it's um, now where do we get? Uh, I said something you said that's not the only way that it works. Oh, yeah. Um, let's, let's look at that part as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I was saying that not, not all Matauranga uh, has been generated kind of using the scientific method. Um, some of it has. Yep. Much, much of it has. And I suppose one of those things about, and just on picking up on that corridor around timing of things and seasonality and without wanting to be flippant. Um, at least with respect to referring to kind of Matauranga, it, it, it's kind of like trying to explain to my to my wife and family, I can't predict when the surf's going to be good, but but when the surf's good, I'd like to be there, surfing. Yeah. And so when those when those things align, and, I, and there's no, I, you you can it's a it's a reactive prediction. You know, you look for those 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 um, swell systems, those storm systems off in the distance. You try and calculate when it comes, but it's purely it's purely reactive until something happens and then but there's no I can't plan and say in two weeks time I'm going to go surfing because yeah. I don't know what the conditions are going to be like but um one of one of the back to this this not not all knowledge is consistent with the scientific method so we have we have our our whakapapa of creation which yeah. starts you know and there, there are there are many of them Many of them start with um, this notion of eor, uh, which is kind of uh, eor always was there, um, and then we move through uh, to kore, which is kind of like potential. Uh, we move through then to te po, which is kind of the night, the darkness. Move through to te ao and te Marama, which is the world, the world of light and knowing, and then from that stem rangi and papa, and then from that stems tane, and then from that kind of humans humans come out of it and so with with my science with my science head on um, I, I don't see necessarily an, an empirical basis to that that doesn't mean to me that I think it's any less important or, or any less awesome it's just I, I don't to me not everything needs to have a scientific method behind it to be important or valid uh, what's interesting though is that a lot of information uh, Matauranga that was observed using empirical observation is nevertheless codified in ways that the science, the true scientists kind of are really struggle to to, um, to understand. And so the example I've given in some of my research is Tanifa. And Tanifa being these these kind of these these mythical creatures, um, but then I'm using other people's words. Uh, but always with Tanifa comes a kind of a bit of a beware. Oh gosh, maybe some danger. 
you know, have, have your wits about you. And in Tanifa that I've written about, and I recognize there's lots of different variations, uh, some of these Tanifa are in the form of lizards that live in streams. Um, and, and the danger part of this, that particular uh, lizard, we don't know the name of it, but it, it, it lies in the Waitipuru stream uh, in the Bay of Plenty area, is that you need to be aware of its flicking tail. And it's said that from time to time, the tail flicks vigorously, violently. Uh, and, and if you just came in with a science framing, you would, you would say, oh, a mythical creature that I can't see. Uh, it's much bigger, if, if that's the size of it, it's much bigger than any lizard we've ever known. Um, and it's just a crazy idea. But when you actually step backward through the processes that led to the observations that led to interpretations that led to that particular Purako, that old tradition, what becomes really clear is that through time, uh, uh, this, the stream originates in some uplifted strata and then it cuts its way down through down to the Rangitaiki Plains. And when it's in the strata, it can't really move from side to side because it's got steep banks on either side. But when it leaves those banks and onto the open plain, uh, it can move. And so if you've ever turned a, a hose tap on full bore, usually when your younger cousin or brother or sister's got it, and it kind of flicks them from side to side. Now, that, that's what water wants to do when it comes um, becomes unimpeded. And through geologic time, the stream would come down, and in a flood, it would flood and burst its banks and carve a new course, and it would work its way through to till as far as it could get, and then it would work its way back again that way. And through time, that's just like the flicking, flicking tail, tail of the lizard. And so actually that knowledge, as fanciful as it seems when you view it through a scientific lens only, is actually based on empirical observations through time. So when you talk about empirical... Um, oh, that's observed. Okay, okay. I was going to say, I, I immediately think of empires and another <laughs> part of the conversation. Um, well, that's, that's uh, part of the dominant... Yeah, there's, there's, yeah. There's, I'm not sure of the deriva derivation of the name, but... Empirical methods were used as part of the imperial project. Yes. Yeah. So, but what it was, um, what you explained, and the way I'll, I'll try and explain it, uh, saying the same things, um, is that um, in one in one set of thinking, it's a um, movie script type scenario with a monster in the water. Oh, yeah, it's not real. What a you know, um, you know, bunch of BS. It's, you know, obviously, there's obviously nothing in that water over there. But the story was created based on what really happened to explain what really happened because that is, that is uh, the explanation in terms of, um, you know, greeting the water as a, as a person or a, a being. Um, this water is alive. It has its own sort of, uh, its own character. So in this part, the way to explain it happening is that there is actually a tiny fire in the water, uh, and that's what's making the movement. And you can say that that is, um, is it mysterical or um, what was the word? Not scientific. Um, Metaphorical. No, no, no. It's more to do with um, make believe. Metaphysical. No, that's getting more scientific. Um, so probably make believe is good. Um, okay. is a good word. So it sounds sounds more well, metaphysical. Metaphysical is, is kind of that. Physical is oh, okay. kind of the physics, and metaphysical is beyond the physics. Ah, okay. So metaphysical. Let's use that. Yeah. We've, yeah, we've actually, um, I was going to say we've actually used. Um, I think I think the metaphysical is used in the the Te Awa Tupo Act, which is the one where we give the Wanganui River legal personality. Okay, Pretty so it's, it's almost it's almost like the the, the co joining of the science that uh, and that the uh, story is created from. I, 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 my argument is that uh, it, it developed independent of the scientific method, and it employs oh, yeah. a, a Maori worldview to to describe it. So I'll say it's matauranga, but it also fits the criteria for science. Yep. And, and, and the, the, the important thing there about the Tanifa is that it serves as a disaster risk reduction mechanism. It serves as a community resilience 
And, and what do I mean by that? If you know that the Tanifa's tail flicks there, you don't build your house there. Sadly, that information didn't get through to the town planners, and so houses were destroyed in flash floods in 2005 in Matata from that very stream. And so, therefore, the, the question about whether the Tanifa is real or not is the wrong question. The question yeah. is, did the knowledge of the Tanifa keep you safe? And if you didn't build there because that's where the Tanifa's tail flicked, it kept you safe. It served its purpose. I think this is I think this is really really good stuff. Like this, why could this not be a course at school, alongside science or instead of science? You know, equally it should be there because I wonder how many other you know. Like, let me take you let me take you right off uh, tangent here. My wife has a, a kidney disorder, and. Um, because of where my mother works, we were able to find out because it wasn't public at the time. But back in two thousand and eight, there was a drug that was coming through. Um, it hadn't had human trials yet, okay. and and it's in the it's in kind of you can get it now. It's been available for a year. So going back two thousand and eight, it wasn't, and she was diagnosed with a kidney disorder. And um, essentially, this uh, medicine is from a plant in the Amazon. Okay. You, you think about the deforestation of the Amazon and a whole bunch of other um, scientifically driven things. Because if we clear the forest that no one uses, we can plant crops and feed people. Um, of course, that actually doesn't work because uh, the climate changes. But you'll know way more than I can ever imagine on that one. So, um, you know, I sort of think how many of these things do the people of the Amazon know? When you have a pain in your side, you chew that plant. It goes away and here we are the western world going oh we've got polycystic kidneys um what do we do hmm oh why don't we why don't we transplant them why don't we do blood transfusions for the rest of your life spend your life attached to a machine oh no why don't we just eat that plant that um grows naturally in the bush and i i think there's how many um indigenous cultures around the world have all of these pieces of knowledge that have been bulldozed over uh, because they sound like uh, something from a, a movie script of a, a lizard in the, in the water that makes the Western culture go poof. Uh, in actual fact, um, follow the path of that story to the actual uh, lesson that it gives you, whether it's medicine for your kidneys or not to build your house where the stream will eventually flood and uh, clean everything out. And you know, it sort of makes me think, uh, I'd rather invest more money in discovering more of these stories than building the next nuclear reactor or um, designing the next uh, million-dollar Bugatti um, car, you know? Absolutely. And I think one of, the, one of the mindsets that I think Indigenous peoples bring um, is, is you see yourself as part of the system. So there's no nature and culture because it's all it's all one, you know. You're you're all linked together, and, and so therefore your knowledge system is based around that, and and the way you think about things and the way you about the thing you think about the things you do is part of that. Contrast that with say a, a science or engineering perspective, which is, you know, this techno scientific rationale, and and you know we force nature to to our will, and we try and make it do this and we make it do that. And, and and to me that I think is one of the fundamental things that we need to be teaching our our, our, our kids is that these we think that way and it's science framing because it's the way we've been taught. It is a worldview. There are different worldviews, and we should be saying, "Hey, there's different ways of making sense of, of the world and knowing the world and explaining the world and making sense of the world." There's not just this one. Um, I'm I'm not anti-science. I am a scientist. There's amazingly valuable things that technology and science can bring. But they're not the only things, uh, and and we've prioritised and privileged that one way of making sense of the world and that one kind of body of knowledge, at our peril now, I think. And so, in a building up on on your example of of that medicine that's come from the Amazon, I've been fortunate in my time to have spent time with some rongoa um, healers, some so in New Zealand, the people who have a, a knowledge of plants and how to treat um, ailments and what's 
what's really interesting, and my apologies for, for all those law experts or, or practitioners maybe, because I'd hate to be called experts, practitioners, uh, that I've come to understand and, you know, message in later on or in the chats if, if I've got this wrong, is that an encyclopedic knowledge of the plants that could be used to treat certain things is, is a critical foundation to be a Rongoa practitioner. You need to know uh, the ailments and you need to know the plants that you might be able to use to treat that. But the difference between a Rongoa and an epidemiologically proven kind of drug approach is that the drug seeks to treat uh, the illness which is in the person and sometimes it makes a lot of sense. But I understand a Rongoa practitioner treats the person to beat the ailment that's within them. And so having that encyclopedic knowledge is the first step. But then you would meet with a person and then you would have your karakia and you'd go into the forest and you would seek a treatment that's correct for that person. Noting there might be one or two or three things that could potentially, or a combination of things that could treat it. And then, so that that's that next level of, of knowledge and understanding. And then the real this is the one that that um that even my medical kind of friends and stuff really struggle with is when you're really in the zone and this is a really maturanga thing is that um and, and i'll pause for a second a, a maturanga approach to knowledge posits that the knowledge is there it's everywhere it's around us and when we when we prepare ourselves and attune ourselves to it it will reveal itself to us so we're not the agents of discovery it's there already. You just need to be in the right frame and attune yourself, and then it will reveal. And so back to the rongoa, when those practitioners go, not only will they be thinking about the person and, and what they're treating, the actual specific plant itself will reveal itself to them and say, I'm the plant that you need to use to treat that individual. And that's just, wow. that's next level stuff. That is, I mean, that is... I'm quite excited by the concept, you know, like um, I've always, as a person, I've always been um, intrigued and maybe, you know, you could laugh at me for saying this, um, but I have grown up a Star Wars fan and always wondered if there was a force and I looked at all my Christian friends. I have been uh, born again Christian for a period of time and I probably now put myself more in the spiritual space than any one particular religion or, or not um, and it's I mean that's a whole nother big confusing um, discussion for myself um, to work out and unravel but the concept that the knowledge is always there and it will reveal itself um, to you when you when you need it for the person and that the plant in this case will actually reveal itself this this gets into that big discussion of um, wairua and you being a um, professor you you might have even done psychology psychology 111 I think it was I did I did psychology first year and still to this day I'm intrigued and amazed and curious they taught us that you can see other beings up until about the age of seven which is as your brain develops in conjunction with adults teaching it out of you you stop having the ability. So when we think of sensing murder and they solve one case which caused an influx of 1,500 cases being asked to be reopened by the family and put through it and it you know, kicked off and I think they, I think they actually they changed the show and it um, lost its way a bit and lost its following. But even my dad who grew up old school Kiwi speak when you're spoken to blah 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 he used to say when I was watching it as a kid at home he'd say oh, what are you watching that crap for bloody mumbo jumbo now he's the one who's glued to it since that that case you know yeah. and um you see the change in people you see the change in the most hardiest of people like my father who would never believe in mumbo jumbo to now turn around and be the one saying hey put it on sensing murders on channel one 7 30 you know <laughs> and yeah. um I, I look at the world you know and I, I talk about the fact that we have uh, evolved on the outside so much right there's my cell phone um and, and as a result, it's caused us to need to uh, look after the inside. So meditation has become the, the new black. It's the most coolest thing out. But it was mumbo jumbo 10 years ago. People laugh at it. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, we're right now at the point where, um, and I can't repeat the name of Māori healers, um, starts with R. Oh, but, Rungoa. Yeah. 
uh, I think we're right at the point where that industry is just going to come to the fore and uh, and a whole range of other aspects of Teo Māori as we transition from being completely closed to anything else but Western science and uh, whatnot to all of these other uh, cultures, but especially here in New Zealand, Te Ao Māori. Uh, and we're not going to see it as simply, oh, uh, that's a silly story about a lizard that's obviously not there in the water. There's no lizard there. To understanding that it's a, a metaphor as well as something literal and has that uh, that effect of telling a story of how to use it for your benefit. Mm. So, yeah, it's a... I don't, know, I don't know what the word is. I almost want to say groundbreaking, um, but for you it won't be, but for me it is um, in this moment. Um, and I think for others, I wonder how many others are out there going, oh, actually, that mumbo-jumbo is actually sounding really good because now I've got my own personal stories twigging off, and I'm thinking, yeah, and the next thing we see this whole wave start uh, moving towards it and, and learning it and following it and it uh, growing, which would be an ultimate, um, you know, blessing from Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori and the fact that we got hooked up to have this, this conversation and Absolutely. I've learned all this now and I'm starting to dream about what's possible. Yeah, and and I think you're right, you know, that Te Reo is, is the mechanism, is is the access point to, to the knowledge. Without Te Reo, none of this stuff would have existed in the first place. And, and really quickly on a couple of points you, you picked up there in Wairua, um, there's, there's another term that's, that, I, that I work with a lot of my research and my work with communities, and that's the term Modi. M-A-U-R-I, Modi. I don't know if you've come across that one before. Modi is kind of, is the closest I know of to the force, from, as Alman Star Wars okay. it, it's, it's It's the life-supporting capacity in soil and water, and you know, a tree can have Modi and a forest will have Modi. Uh, people so are, we, are you talking about the same word that would be said at the end of something where they say, hey, Modi order? Tihe Modi order. Yep. Yeah. And that, that is kind of behold the kind of the, the breath of life. And so in a, in a conceptual term with, with, with wairua and tinana, so the wairua is the spirit, tinana is the body, Modi is the force that holds those things together. Ah. And so when, when, when for Māori, when we pass away, uh, that that bond, the physical and the spiritual being held together, that modi, is is what's severed, and so then the tinana stays uh, in the land of the physical world, and the wairua departs to um, to Waikinui, Hawaii or Hawaii Pamama, goes through to to the underworld with Tinanui Te and so modi, uh, explore that in a little bit um, in some of your your adventures and, and your forays. It's a, it's when going back to my work on water, I try and um, when the Maori communities have said to me, "Oh, the Maori of our water's been stuffed." What I my job is to to take what that means and to take the technical reports that the councils and the industries are providing and saying, "Let's bring these all together." Here's what the community is saying, and here's what these reports say, and so this is what they're trying to say to you. And that, that's how I kind of see my job as a a broker of. Of, of knowledge and facilitator of discussions because I understand the language of the science and I'm beginning to get better and better at understanding of, of the language of mātauranga. And because those communities, those Hapori Māori communities' voices have been so silenced for the longest time, I choose to put my effort and energy into having their voice heard. So, you know, I've, I've, I've worked with communities that say, hey, this is, this is, this is how we see the rivers being impacted. And we include all the science information because it's important, but it's not the only way. That's not the only body of knowledge that they draw from to say, here's what's been um, been happening. Wow, this is this is amazing. You know, the the real, sorry, the real, the current example because everything we're talking about is real, um, is say the the rivers being affected by farming, right, or being affected by factories, depending on where you are in the country, and the pollutants that have come out of those industries um, or whatever the case might be, might be might be something else, might be some might naturally occurring algae that's clogging up the water or it could be the, um, the plants that have been brought from overseas that grow like weeds and clog it up, right? So all these different uh, things that are affecting the, the mouldy of the water and um, you know, looking at how the intersection of those two worlds and two sciences um, can be brought together for the 
best benefit the fastest really in terms of bringing back the Māori or reconnecting the Māori. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is getting really fascinating. So I just have to um, bring it to an end. Really sad because we've been going almost an hour and I feel like we're just starting to get to the tip of the iceberg and we've got everything underneath the ocean to, to dive into. Um, so I, I unfortunately uh, have a four o'clock and need to meet that commitment but i think we we have i think got the discussion started the corridor has begun and uh, i am totally excited to carry this on and get uh, further along the way so let's let's put a pause here let's call it a pause not a stop and um work out how we bring this back you know maybe we do we'll work it out but maybe there's a monthly session or a fortnightly session or something where we can go deep on a subject and add to it and keep uh, developing because i think that's one of the things um is how do we continue the um te wiki o te reo maori from one week to forever yeah and i, and I just think doing so doing a regular session uh, so that people know that every month this day this time they can tune in um then i think that will probably be good so we'll, we'll talk about that detail offline i think i want to yeah. say thank you so much um so tenako uh at Quiora. um actually there's i think there's been about five or six ways i've learned how to say thank you um so we'll, we'll keep it at those two but it's been so cool uh yeah awesome yeah um so thank you very much for your time and and effort we'll say kakite for now and we will re-consume when we uh, have got the details sorted thank you very much dan all right or oh, ryan the light Ryan Tereona, come on, we're speaking Ryan, to Tereona. <laughs> cool, thank you so much. It has All been right, a journey. Thank you. Go fight. Cheers.